Thank you, Anthony. Everyone else sleeping. Okay, guys, we are going to be reading 1 Samuel 8. If you have a blue Bible, it's page 132. My name is Casey Reyes. I get to help out with women's ministries here at North Mountain. It's the best. I know these other people think that they have the best ministry, but they're wrong. Um, Okay, page 132. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Trey. I am from Arcadia Redemption Church, Arcadia. Um, I'm psyched to be here. There's a lot of you that I know. Um, there's many of you I don't know. I'd love to meet you, too. Uh, what's neat is Arcadia was the closest when North Mountain planted. So Arcadia was one of the main planters here. So a lot of the people came from Arcadia, and you stole a bunch of my friends. <laughs> just want you to know that. Uh, <clears throat> well, something about us at Redemption is that we normally preach book like through a book, verse by verse. That's our norm, that's our style, and then every now and again we throw in like a thematic or a type of systematic uh, series. And we did that with countercultural convictions, we've done that before, but we just finished up our our study in Colossians, and what all the redemptions are doing as we go forward this summer is we're starting in a study that's kind of a mix of both. It's a topic of guys' lives, 
and we're picking passages of scripture that are particularly about those individuals' lives. We're gonna go through Saul, we're gonna go through uh, David, and we're gonna go through Solomon. Today's gonna be more about how that monarchy of kingship started. We're gonna kick off the whole uh, season, and it's important to know the context before we dive in right into something just with just about anything. Uh, but it's important to know this as well. The Old Testament, anytime you read the Old Testament, well, anytime in the Bible, the Bible's real. If, if you were watching a Netflix show and you saw the rating of the Old Testament, it would be TVMA. This is, yeah, this is not uh, sugar-coated. It's, it's real. Um, in, in fact, our lead pastor, Frank, at, at Arcadia said that reading the Old Testament is fun because of all the sin and foolishness. And it's so true. There's so much there. But in all seriousness, there's three way, ways to learn. There's kind of like the classroom setting where you sit in a classroom and you're told, hey, do this or don't do that. And there's a little bit of a disconnect between the classroom and real life. If you're a teacher, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've been a student for a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a lot you have to learn. Then there's the second way you can learn, which is by your own experience and your own failures. And sometimes it's painful, but at some point you learn, hey, I probably shouldn't do that or I should do these things because of your own experience. But the third, which is my favorite way to learn, is by other people's experience and failures because then it's less painful for me. I can pick up and learn. And this is why it's so important that we read the Old Testament. There are so many failures and it's God put that down in words for us on purpose so that we might see a need. So it's important that we continue to sit in the Old Testament uh, we're also going to see in this study, again, how the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is about Jesus. The whole Bible is always, always has been about Christ. And it's about God redeeming people to himself. We're going to see that over and over. There's this cycle that happens in the Bible where God makes his covenant people. They're like, yes, we're going to be faithful. We're going to be your people. We're going to be the best. And then they fail and they mess up, they have to deal with the consequences, and then God redeems them. We're gonna see again and again how to have a covenant people, God had to fulfill both his side and our side. So this series is gonna be a lot of that. Um, and it's gonna be about Jesus being sent as the perfect message of God's love, creating the forever covenant people, which is us, us who are in Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, none of this ink on paper means anything without your spirit to put meaning to it. Any words that come out of my mouth don't mean anything unless your spirit uses it. Lord, I pray that you would meet us here and use that. Um, I pray regardless of the uh, weakness of the vessel you're using this morning, that you would move, that the the hearts of us would be changed, that we'd be transformed, that you would stir up, deepen, and strengthen our affections for you, that we would leave here with more love and, and joy in our hearts that, that we are hidden with you. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, as Casey read, we're gonna be in 1 Samuel, so if you haven't gotten to open up your Bible, go to uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, and uh, that's where we're gonna be studying today. I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit, but you can just camp out in 1 Samuel 8. And there's, I mean, you might flip back a couple times, but anyway. So there's a lot that has happened before this point in 1 Samuel 8. We got to hear a little bit of the story. A lot has happened. 
First, I'm gonna make a statement. I know we're covering over so many good things, but we don't have the time to just unpack it all, even though I would love to just do a whole, you know, couple hours on the history of Israel. But uh, God has taken Israel. They were slaves in Egypt, and he freed them from Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time, and walks them into the promised land. I know I'm covering over a lot, so much, and a lot that's pertinent to this too, but so God takes them from slavery, brings them to the promised land. God has set Israel apart. They're different. They're special. The word that God uses for this is holy, set apart. They are holy to God. God does all these things. He gives them all these rules so that they can show everyone around them that they're gods. They're especially gods. They have to eat specific things, and they can't eat specific things. They have to wear, can you imagine wearing the things that they had to wear all the time to show that you are in, hidden with God? They had to wear things that weren't cross. You couldn't have like 10% cotton and 90% polyester. You had to have one little thing. They uh, looked a certain way. You had to grow your beards a certain way. All the guys, you know, we love to do our goatees, our beards, our mustaches, none of that. You have to all look the same with your types of beards. They were supposed to be special and set apart to show that they were special to the Lord. They also had to live differently. They couldn't just worship any God that was in the nation or around the nations um, around them. They couldn't just do whatever they wanted. They had a specific lifestyle that they had to lead so that they could be showing they are especially gods. They are holy, they are set apart. And Israel up before this point has promised to be faithful to God multiple times, has promised to be faithful to God and to be his covenant people. So God is leading the nation of Israel as its sole king right now. He uses prophets and judges to, to carry out his kingly leadership, but God is the man. He's it. It's not like there's a one king, and we're going to learn about them asking for a king. And in this era, Israel thinks that their biggest enemy is the Philistines. Some of us have heard of that, and they're all filled with steam, Philistines. And so they think their biggest, their biggest enemy is the Philistines. And they had some other enemies, um, that, that were around him at the time, like the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. Of course, they were against technology, the Gigabytes. Yeah, I know. You see what I did there? That was so silly. But Israel's biggest enemy was not the Philistines, and it was not the neighboring countries. Their biggest enemy was themselves. Israel's biggest enemy was themselves. 1 Samuel 3, we get to learn about how Samuel uh, is seen by the nation. A couple pages to your left, and it says in 1 Samuel 3, 19 and 20, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, so it's from the northern territory all the way to the southern, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Everybody knew this guy's the real deal. This guy speaks on behalf of God, this guy's our leader. And we don't just learn that Saul uh, or that uh, Samuel was just put in place. He was also given this specific ability where when he spoke, his words never fell to the ground. But the reason that his words never fell to the ground is because he was speaking God's words. God's, it's as important we know this. God's word never returns void. Never returns void. So when he speaks, his words never fall to the ground because he's speaking God's words. And we learn also that Samuel's leadership is very effective. Uh, in 1 Samuel 7, 3 and 4, it says this. 
And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord, turn back, repent, turn back to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, which are these, these worship things for other gods. Um, put them away from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away their bales and they listened to him. They put away their bales and their Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. So they listened to him. His words never fall to the ground. It's amazing. And then we see how it happens. So does God actually save them from the Philistines? If you repent and turn back to the Lord, is he gonna save you? Verse 10 in chapter seven, it says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, while they're trying to repent, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. That sounds a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing. Samuel comes out and says, hey, repent and God's got you. That sounds like a really great structure of how things should work. Repent, God's got you. No, Philistines, Philish means, am I right? God's gonna handle those guys. You're not gonna have to worry about it. And guess what? You don't have to fight anything. God will go before you and fight your battles. Samuel leads Israel to victory. Samuel's leadership is effective. He leads them into turning back to God and then God fights their battles. My hope for us this morning is that our affections for Christ would be stirred, they would be deepened, and that they would be strengthened. That our affections, our desire, our longing for Christ would be deepened and strengthened. That we would truly, to our deepest part of our hearts, believe that the person of Jesus and the things that he calls us to are the absolute best for us. That we would believe that the person of Jesus and the things he calls us to are the absolute best for us. There's not, you cannot do better than that. And that we would be a people who never exchange Christ for something we think is better. If I could rename this section, I wouldn't name it. It says here in my Bible, Israel demands a king. I wouldn't name it that. I would name it a great exchange. A great exchange or a horrible exchange. A horrible exchange. The main point of this text, I know we've read it and most people are like, wait for the punchline at the end. I'm gonna give it to you right now. The main point of this text is Israel exchanges their holiness for worldliness. And God loves them enough to do it. Let them do it. In this sermon, we're going to talk about how God loves you enough to let you exchange your worldliness to look virtuous, to look good in the eyes of the world. We're also gonna talk about how God loves what is good so much that he'll also let you experience the consequences of what you decide. Consequences are not a surprise. We know exactly what they are, and we choose them willingly. Are you willing to forfeit your holiness to look virtuous to the world? We're gonna talk about what that's gonna cost us if we do. There's this poem called Smart. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. I grew up on it, and I loved it as a kid. It was written by Shel Silverstein. This is how it reads. My dad gave me a $1 bill because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. Just then along came old blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes. And four is more than three. And I took the nickels to Haram Coombs down at the seed feed store. 
And the fool gave me five pennies for them. And five is more than four. Then I went and showed my dad. And he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head, too proud of me to speak. <laughs> I think Israel's a lot like this little boy. And I think we are too. I think we, make, we're making, we think we're making a really good decision in what we'll exchange for. And rarely is it actually a good thing. So verse 1, let's jump in. It says, verse 1, chapter 8, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Um, I know we have a great array of age in the room. And I just want you to think for a minute. We've all thought about our retirement. We've all thought about what it's going to be like when we get old. Who's going to take my business when I'm old and done? We've all thought about what am I going to do in my retirement or whatever. Samuel has risen up his boys to take over the family business. So he's getting old, and he's, my sons are going to be judges over Israel. This is great. Uh, it's going to be, you know, prophets and sons. I love it. Uh, verse 2, the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. So Beersheba, so in Judah, which is where they were living, there's this big, it's in the southern part of the kingdom. Uh, Beersheba is kind of towards the bottom. And then at the top is Jerusalem. And then, of course, there's the rest of the kingdom above it. But just in Judah, that southern state, that's kind of the layout. So he says, you know what? There's this town. It's in Judah. We're putting, they're going to be, they're gonna be uh, doing their thing down there. There'll be judges down there. Verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Does this sound like any judges that we know ever? Does this sound like any politicians? Nothing new under the sun here. And the Bible is real to tell us about how it happened. So Eli, or sorry, Samuel has his boys and they're not doing well. And it makes me think of Eli. Eli's the man that raised Samuel. Samuel has a really cool story. Samuel's mom, her name's Hannah, wonderful name. It's my wife's name best name. So Hannah can't have kids, and she's heartbroken about it. So she says, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. So God does. And what's cool is God doesn't, God doesn't stop there. She never asked for it, didn't expect to have more kids, but God gave her like five more kids, which is really neat. But she gets Samuel. She gets her first son. She's so overtaken. She's just like, come on, mamas. You know, when you see your boy, you're just like, ooh, that's my boy. Well, she then takes him to Eli, who's the prophet of the Lord, and then Eli raises him. So she gives him back to the Lord. She has this beautiful song. You should go read about it. It's wonderful. But Eli raises Samuel. Interestingly enough, the first thing that Samuel did, the first time he hears from the Lord, he speaks an indictment on Eli's sons. Why? First Samuel 2 talks about it. Again, we're, we're having to cover a lot of context so we understand what's going on here. In uh, 1 Samuel 2, 22, it says, Now Eli was very old. Again, it starts kind of the same. He's old, he's thinking about his sons. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They're sleeping around with girls they shouldn't be sleeping around with, of course, and in a place that's supposed to be holy to the Lord. Again, I told you, this is real life stuff. Eli's sons are really messing up here. Definitely not walking in holiness. And he said to them, Eli says to his boys, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings 
from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. In the face of the lineage not being what God uses to bring up the next person, God appoints someone like Samuel. We, the lineage of Eli is not what brought holiness to the kids. And God raised somebody up. That's how the Lord does things in this structure. It's not just that Eli, Eli's sons, their sons, their sons. No, that's not how it works, clearly. God raises someone up for a specific thing, and he raised Samuel up. And I don't, I don't know that this is something like what happens to a lot of really great pastors, where they do a really good job at caring for their flock at the expense of caring for their family. I don't know if it was one of those, because they were really great, you know, prophets and leaders. I don't know if it's one of those things where they did everything that they could and they just didn't choose the way of the Lord. I know we'll have parents in here that maybe feel like that too. Maybe that's my story. I've done everything that I can and my kids, I just, you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink. Some, I don't know if it's like that. And just a side note, sometimes it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the Lord awakening a heart at his time. So in this, this is something to, to sit deep on. I don't know exactly what's happening on, on why the boys weren't being faithful to the Lord, but the point of this is that they were unfaithful and the Lord has his own way, not our way, his own way of bringing up the people he'll bring up. So Samuel's boys were living wayward and this did not create confidence for the people. His boys were living wayward and this did not create confidence for the people. They're like, you're, you've just put your boys as judges and they're not doing well. Verse four, it goes on. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, which is right next to Jerusalem at the northern part. So he doesn't live in the same town as his boys and said to him, we'll get into that. Hold on. Ah, we'll get into it now. Okay. And he said to them, this is, this is what uh, the is Israel says to Samuel. Behold, you are old. What? The first thing they say is you're old? Can you imagine doing that today? Hey, you're old. We know you're on your way out. Like, come on. Like, our lead pastor, Frank, is in his 60s. Can you imagine me going up to him and saying, listen, the Lord spoke to me. It's time for me to be lead pastor. You're old. You're on your way out. No, this is, this is such a disrespect to him. And I can just imagine him being a little hurt by that. But they don't stop there. They don't stop there. They get to bring all the other things up to him as well. Hey, you're old. And your sons don't walk in the ways of the Lord. Hey, and you've also failed as a father. Now, point for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is what they say to him. Think of what they're asking with, and what they're implying with this request. They're asking to get rid of their distinct, set-apart, holy, political structure that the Lord gave to them so that they can look like the nations. They're asking to no longer be God's special little, no, we want to look like everyone else. We don't want to be set apart. Seems much easier, seems much better, things work really well for them. Three things that I really wanna be good at in life, three things that I just, 
When I die, I want people to be like, he did these three things really well. I don't care about anything else. First is, I want to be good at my job. I want to be faithful and good at my job. More importantly, I want to be a good dad. And even more so, I can't be a good dad unless I'm a good husband. I want to be a good husband. Two of those things just got shot down for this man. I can just imagine his heart being torn. Hating on my job. Hating on my kids. How does he respond? How does he respond? If you're trying to exchange their holiness, which God gave them, so they can be like everyone else, how does he respond? Let's read on. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. He's heartbroken, and the first thing he does is he goes, God, what? He prays. This is huge for us. We should have relationship with the Lord that when something really cuts deep, the first thing we do is not lash out. We don't just start responding in anger or in just plain stupidity. We go right to the Lord. First thing he does, he prays. So he prays, and then the Lord answers him, and the Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. They've not rejected you. They rejected me from being king over them. They're rejecting God to be politically trendy. Does this sound familiar to today? Politically trendy. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's not what's really, that's not what's coming in on my feed these days. How often are we deciding what is moral based on what is trendy rather than what God says? We have what God says. How often are we de deciding what we're going to make up our mind about based on what we see on our TikTok feed or our, and is Snapchat a thing anymore? Snapchat or whatever story it is. I don't have any social media, so I'm like against the gigabytes too. <laughs> what does the majority say is okay? And maybe we'll go with that because they must have put in a lot of thought of this. We, we will forfeit our holiness to look virtuous to the world. If it looks good to the world, if it's what they're doing, man, <laughs> sign me up. You ever just think about that? You're hanging out. I mean, just this just the heart of this. You're hanging out with some people. They may not know the Lord. They may know the Lord. But you know you can make them laugh. So you say the thing that'll make them laugh, but you know that the Lord would never laugh at that. The majority of us in here, if you haven't done that, I would be so shocked. The majority of us in here love to take the gift of humor, the gift of laughter, and distort it, make it our own, package it up to however we can get good stuff from it. We do the same thing with just about everything that God's given us. Here's a good one. Do you date based on how the Bible would have you behave or what the world will accept as okay? Or maybe even Christians. What Christians would accept as okay. Which Christians are not the ones who have, you have to give an account to when you die. Maybe just be different enough. Have you forsaken God's view and adopted the world's view on marriage? Which God created? Start thinking about divorce. Well, he doesn't make me happy anymore. So just, you know, she just, she doesn't share her french fries with me anymore. So... How often are we letting the world influence the way that we'll, we'll frame what we think on something? How about impurity? 
who determines what is actually pursuing purity? Is it because culture says, oh, that's, that's okay? You don't want dating to be boring. So you should have fun or whatever. Or you're single. You, you don't have a spouse, so it's okay. Who's determining how we would pursue purity? Because before marriage, there's a way that we pursue purity. People are having way too much sex before they get married. After marriage, people are not having enough sex. And I, I mean, I don't, whether you're single or not single, whether you're married or not married, you've probably heard this. But if you were the enemy, how would you keep people from, feeling, from pursuing the Lord? Before people get married, you do everything you can to get people to, to compromise on that. After marriage, how would you do it? Drive a wedge between what's good. You can't, I mean, just to say, I know this is a little, I wasn't planning on saying this, but you can't have a healthy marriage without having sex well because it's a, it's a design by God and he did it on purpose. Anyway, uh, let's move on. <clears throat> so have we forsaken God's view and adopted the world's view on things? I wanna go a little bit more into singles here. Are you viewing your singleness biblically? Are you making disciples with your time and growing in purity and maturity and not letting other people's poor opinions define what maturity in Christ is for you? Come on. How often have you heard, when are you getting married? You're not, there's this message of you're not complete until you get married, which is just foolishness. Or, well, you can't really serve in ministry or be a pastor or, or anything until you're married. Have you read Christ or have you read Paul? Are we looking at singleness biblically? And there's also just this other thing of marriage. Do you view singleness biblically? Are you the home and the family and the home base for our single people in our churches? Letting them into the real of your life. Hosting them in, in a way that would let them know that they're not just on the outside. The Bible uses familial language on purpose. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we viewing these things biblically or are we just accepting what culturally is the norm and what other people are doing? How are we, do we know our Bible well enough to say, well, this is what the Bible actually says about that? Because it matters. How about this one? Have you determined your view on a controversial political topic because it sounds best to you on whatever or because you're led to it from scripture? How often are we diving into our Bibles when something comes up on the news or the judges make a new thing and we wanna come up with a really great perspective on things, do we at least wrestle with what scripture says before we come out and start making opinions? I'm not getting at the opinions, I'm getting at the heart. Where do we start there? You're not meant to look like the world, by the way. And you're not judged based on how virtuous the world thinks that you are. You're going to give an account for the life that you live. It's important to remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8.1. It's also important to remember Romans 14. You will give an account. Your life, your decisions, holding on to that holiness that the Lord has given you matters, and it's urgent. But we reject our holiness to pursue looking virtuous, just like the world all the time, and I, I see three reasons why Israel rejected their holiness. The first was they are a discontent 
people. They are a forgetting people, and they are a gullible people. So they're a discontent people, and just like Israel, we are a discontent people. The way we say it at Arcadia is this. People often wish they were somewhere else. You're in Phoenix in the middle of summer. You guys are here and not on vacation. They wish they were somewhere else. They wish that they were doing something else, and they wish that they were with someone else. We, at our core, we are discontent. Rarely are we just like, Lord, thank you for this. How about this? When it says um, in Proverbs that he who finds a wife finds what is good and the Lord has favor on him, when you look at your spouse, do you see the Lord's favor on you? We are a discontent people. Discontent with our jobs, the cities we live in. It's too packed now because all these LA folk are moving in. Discontent with our house. Man, if only we could just get into that new place, get out of an apartment and get a detached home or whatever. Discontent in your spouse, lack thereof. Israel's discontentment led them into making foolish decisions. And our discontentment will lead us into making foolish decisions. We should learn from them and be content like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 when he talks about this. I'm about to quote a verse that is so often taken out of context. I'm about to quote a verse that so often is put on a t-shirt, put on a mug, because man, if we can take that, cut it out, and paste it on whatever the heck I want to paste it on, man, that would make me pumped. I'm about to read that. We're going to talk about the real context of this. This is what Paul says to the Philippian church. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Pause. He didn't say, I have learned how to be content. He said, in any situation, I've learned I am to be content. This is is a mandate the Lord has put on his heart to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty, and hunger, abundance, and need. Interesting, he needs a secret to help him face abundance and plenty. I don't think we think about that enough. Dangerous. So he's learned the secret. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In all things, God can make you content. That's what that verse means. And you're not just called to, hey, you should try to be, you're called to be content, and the Lord will strengthen you, and that's a promise from the Lord. Yes and amen. Come on. It matters for us. In all things, God will make you content, and it matters that we would take the time to really depend on the Lord in the midst of that. So Israel was a discontent people. Israel is also a forgetting people. Look how Israel forgets their history, okay? Having God fight their battles as their king, freed them from Egypt, having God fight their battles for them, uh, freed them from the giant, the giants, the Amalekites, when they came into the promised land. Giants that 40 years earlier, when they, before they fought them, the original people who came from Egypt were like, we can't do that. We saw all that God did in Egypt, but we can't take the giants. But having the Lord fight for them, freed them from that. Having the Lord fight for them, freed them from the Philistines. We just read that in chapter 7. I can picture Samuel saying, guys, are you crazy? Do you remember how sure it is to rely on the Lord? And you want to forsake that? 
the whole Old Testament, like I said before, is this cycle of God saving this people, them promising to be faithful, they forget what God has done for them and who God is, then they grasp for something else to satisfy them, and then they have to deal with the consequences, and then God redeems them. This is the cycle over and over, and it shows their need for something. They can't keep their end of the covenant. We have a dog. Her dog's name is Luna. She's not really nice to people. She doesn't know. Anyway, I love her. But um, we sleep really good at night. just want to let you know that because she doesn't like other people. But um, I'm a dog person through and through. I grew up with dogs. My wife grew up with dogs. We're just dog people in our house. Don't care that they shed, whatever. Love them. Cats, I hate them. I love you, cat people. I love you. I hate your cats. I hate your choice in pets. I hate it. But there's room. I mean, plurality in the, in the body, you know. He who seems to be weaker is indispensable. Anyway, I love dogs. And it's funny that I would say this right before I'm about to say the most disgusting thing that dogs do. Dogs will forget so quickly. They'll forget so quickly. You might give your dog something you shouldn't have given them and they'll get sick. They'll throw it up and then they'll go right back to it to try and eat it. We do that. We do that. Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog returns to its vomit. This is in the Bible, people. Like a dog re- that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Like Israel, we are in this cycle. We can trade our holiness because we are a forgetting people. We forget who the Lord is. We forget what he's done for us. And we will trade our holiness for worldliness. This is who God is. God is generous. God always gives you what is best for you. God does not withhold what is best for you. The problem is that what you think is best for you and what God knows is best for you are often not the same thing. I'm over here like the Lord, what's best for me is you give me that lottery and I'm like, get some houseboats and no, the Lord knows that that would be like a curse on me. It's harder for a man, a rich man to go to heaven than for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle. Do we look at richness biblically? not saying it's bad, just saying it's dangerous. We have to be very, very serious for how we're going to look at what God gives us to steward. And we have to hold it open-handedly. There's an urgency on us to remember the Lord. Again, like I said, the Old Testament is, is TVMA. I'm going to read Numbers 15, 37 through 41. It says it this way. So the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. This is how important it is for them to remember. And to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So remember the commandments. Remember to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, not to follow after your desires, not to follow after trying to look virtuous to the world, which you are inclined to whore after, So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy, set apart to your God. I am the Lord your God. This is who I am, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. This is what I've done. I am the Lord your God. Again, this is who I am. I am your God. Over and over, they would forget. And God's like, well, wear something to remember. Put a string on your finger or something. This is important and urgent that you would remember this. How serious are we taking our remembrance of who God is and what he's done? How serious are we in that? How serious are we when we wake up 
And before we start thinking of the list of things that you know that we have to do, do we sit and remember the Lord? When we forget the Lord and we're discontent, we make foolish decisions. So Israel is a forgetting people. Israel is also a gullible people. Like Israel, we are also gullible. Uh, there's this psychologist who's got a PhD in psychology. Her name's Maria Konnikova. Uh, she's a Russian-American uh, author as well. And she wrote a book on why con artistry, or like, like con artists, why it, it works. In her book, The Confidence Game, or, or, you know, con artist confidence, The Confidence Game, why we fall for it every time. She writes this. In some ways, confidence artists, con artists like Damara, she was somebody that they were doing a case study on, have it easy. They have it easy. We've done most of the work for them We want to believe in what they're telling us. Their genius lies in figuring out what precisely it is that we want and how they can present themselves as the perfect vehicle for delivering on that desire. Our discontentment breeds a desire that deceives us. We want to believe that the something that seems better really is better. If it's too good to be true, it's not. It's not real. We've all heard this. It is too good to be true. If it seems too good to be true, it is. Our discontentment breeds this desire to believe this. If people were content, con artists would be out of the job. Isn't that amazing? Israel was discontent with what God had given them. They were forgetting people, and they were forgetting that God does not withhold what is best for them, And this made them gullible to believe the lie that something else was better. We can believe that same lie. We will grasp at almost anything if it will give us better. Humanity has a track record in forsaking God for something we think is better. Let's get back to 1 Samuel 8. It says this in uh, verse 8. According to, this is God speaking to uh, Samuel. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. The second time he says that. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. It is the heart of man to forsake God. Over and over. He says, since I brought them out of Egypt, they've been doing this. And we love to serve other things. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Some translations say desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We're deceived by our own hearts. Our own desires make us gullible. If Israel was content with what God had given them and trusted God to raise up another Samuel or someone, so much pain would have been averted but they wanted better. People are not naturally good. Is that news? The Bible talks about how we've been born into sin and we naturally revert to sin. It takes the Lord in our heart to bring us out of that. Ephesians 2 talks about how we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We are not naturally good. God still shows his love and mercy though. And he gives them a warning. He's like, yeah, but warn them. This is what Samuel says is God's warning. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were, who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. You may think you know what it's going to be like, but I'm about to tell you what it's going to be like. This is what it's going to be like. 
He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. You're going to fight his battles. Your sons are going to be the ones fighting his battles. That's what's going to happen. Verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He's going to tell you what to do. He's going to tell you which battles to fight. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. You don't even, you won't even get the best of your fields. You'll put all this work in all year and your harvest is going to come and the best of what you have, he's going to give to his servants. He's not even going to take it. He has something better for himself. He's going to give it to his servants. This is what's going to happen, people. He will take the tenth of your grain, a tenth. That should have our ears perk up. That's the word we get tithe from, tenth, tithe. We're going to come back to that. He will take the tenth of your grain. Notice how it says the, that's a definite article, the tenth of your grain. Um, and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to do his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, there it is again, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. I'm telling you the consequences, you're still choosing it, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You're gonna have to deal with the consequences. You're making your bed, you're gonna have to lay in it. God warns them, warns them that the king will make them fight his battles, do his work, and he's going to take their stuff. God is not surprising them with the consequences. He's giving them the cost that they're going to have to pay for this. He's giving them the cost that they're going to have to pay for this. Also, uh, Tyler Thompson is one of the pastors at Arcadia. He's preaching this at Arcadia, and we were talking about it, and he's like, Interesting, this tenth thing, this tithe. God said, hey, you have to give us a tenth. You need to give us a tenth. Give me, give the temple a tenth of what you make. And they're saying that that tenth is going to be given to the king. These people are saying, we can better invest our money in a king rather than God. Does that preach to anybody here? Better invest my money somewhere else and make me more money and do something better for me than investing in the Lord, giving to the Lord what he's asked. Then take that tent and I'm, they're going to give it to the king. God told them what this monarchy would do and they, and they didn't believe them. Look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. No, 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 our king's going to be like this, that we may also be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. No, 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 we're not going to fight his battles. He's going to fight it before us. That's what kind of king we're going to have. Samuel, you don't know what you're talking about. I know you're speaking God's words, but you don't know what you're talking about. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the Lord, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. Again, a third time he said that. And make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. He's like, I'm done with you guys. It's, they wanted a king their way. He's gonna go fight our battles. Interesting, Saul's gonna become their king. And Saul, the guy that ends up being their king, ends up having a little shepherd boy be the one to go and fight a giant in his place. You think he's going to go fight your battles? You have no idea how this is going to play out, people. I'm telling you the consequences. You're not listening. It's also interesting that they, God tells Samuel to obey their voice. This verbiage should, God never says this. Never. Obey their voice. 
It's almost like we should be hearing indictment of giving them over to their sin here. Yeah, obey their voice. They won't obey me. Let them have their consequence. Let them do their thing. God loves them enough to give it to them. People have been exchanging what God has given for cheap substitutes that lead us to destruction since the beginning. We believe the lie that there is something better. Did God really say not to eat the fruit? Since the very beginning, this has been our heart. Just as Israel made a great exchange for a human king, Jesus made the great exchange when he gave his righteousness and took our sinfulness. We could not uphold our end of the covenant here. And when Jesus came, he knew our heart to exchange good for the bad, and he took and gave his good to us and took our bad, took our penalty that we deserved on that. Here are a few ways, um, before I get into that, people could not remain faithful to the covenant. I want us to really get this. Um, Where Israel wanted to be like the world, how neat is this? They wanted to forsake the theocracy, God's leadership. When Israel wanted to be like the world, God redeems that in giving them this everlasting perfect king in Christ. How cool is that? Gives them over to their sin and he's like, I'll redeem it. That's who God is. I think it's wonderful. Okay, four, four ways I think we, we could mature into being a people who don't exchange our holiness for worldliness. I know it's silly. You're like, oh, you're going to name there's a four step. No, hopefully, because it's four things, I can say it and you'll remember it when you're doing dishes or when you're you know, cleaning or whatever and it comes back. And that when we come together and worship and, and hear from God's word that we're formed by it and it's not just this box that we've checked and we've done it in our week, but we might be formed as we go into our week. So first one is this, be content uh, being set apart. We shouldn't look like the world. We will not receive the reward of human praise when we do this though. We will not receive that reward if we are being set apart, but it will be worth it. We should look like we are citizens of heaven. Guys, it's almost 4th of July. We should look like we're citizens of heaven before we're citizens of the U.S. Some people right now are like, I can't believe you would say that. We should look like we're citizens of heaven before Republicans or Democrats. Number two, remember who God is. Remember who God is. God made this so, remember who God is. God is generous and wants abundant life for you. John 10, Jesus says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have life abundantly. That's who Christ is. That's who God is. Remember that so that we don't exchange what God has given us for something we think that is better, but it is not. If we forget this, we will return to our vomit like the dog. Number three, do not believe the lie there is something better than what God has given us. Don't believe it. Don't be gullible. We know what God has given us by knowing his word. We should be getting our noses in our Bible so we know what is from the Lord, so that we can discern as we see these things on our TikTok, so we can discern as we see the things that the world's telling us, I know what's from the Lord and I know what's not from the Lord. Matthew 7 says, in 24 and 27, it says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking, and then does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. The consequence of hearing the, words, Lord, hearing the Lord's words and doing them is that your house won't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man 
who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The consequence of us exchanging our holiness for worldliness is that your house will have a great fall. That is not worth it. You might get the human praise, but your house will fall. Write this book on your hearts. We should be memorizing this. We should be knowing this. Heed the warning of not being set apart. The Bible is not some outdated document that we can't do better than this. It's not like we can rewrite it to be better. We're living and active. Number four, repent quickly. We're still on this side of heaven. We're still going to make mistakes. We're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to find that you will still, again, at times, trade your holiness for God's, uh, for worldliness. And in that moment, it would be foolish for you to just beat yourself up. I did it again. It's almost as if we're trying to take some of that weight off, across, off the cross of Christ, put it on ourselves, because that helps. Christ already did the work here. He upheld our end of the covenant. We are already Christ's. We work from that. We don't work for that. We work from the fact that we're already Christ's. We don't have to work for the fact to be Christ. So when you mess up, repent quickly. Turn back to the Lord. What happens? The Philistines are defeated. May we be a people who never exchange our holiness. The four things were that we would, uh, hold on, find that. <laughs> We would be content, we would remember, we would not be gullible, and then we would repent quickly. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, you're so good to us to give us the scriptures um, and to give us all 66 books of it. Not every church in history has had that. I thank you that you would bless us with this, that we could be formed by it and shaped by it and have abundant life. Lord, I pray that we would not be a people who forsake the things you've given us so that we could look virtuous to the world. Um, Lord, I also just pray, Lord, that we would grow into being your, your covenant people and that we would image that well. Pray against the enemy trying to keep us from that also. Bless, bless us as we get to finish in our, in our time of worship, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.